getting to be a bit of an old hat at this whole counting lark. Mm. Can you do plast uh, five? Um, I, I don't see why I would need to. No, me neither. Just asking. Well, you know, some people like to specialize in these sorts of things, but I, I, oh, I like yeah. to very much like cooking or um, playing music. If you just learn like a piece or, you know, mm. a dish, you know, then yeah. you can usually get by. Great. Yeah, yeah. I agree. It's, yeah. Yeah. Why go, yeah. Why go extra? People are I mean, I love beans on toast. I'm happy to eat that every day for the rest of my life. Well, precisely. Mm. It's the best. Mm. And there's no need to progress further than that. No. Although I have heard that there are some folk might put a little cheese on that bean on toast. Ooh, a little marmite underneath. A little marmite Poached underneath. egg on top. Oh, you're getting into some experimentation here that's mm. moving into what I would call foreign cuisine, probably oh. at this stage. Because it has more than because it has more than three ingredients. But with marmite? Mm, it does make that does have uh, uh, chuck it fairly solidly back towards the English side of the line. What if I put it true. on the whitest, most plasticky bread ever? Yeah, it's got to be super, super plasticky bread. Mm. Delicious. In order to count as an Englishman's feast, mm. you can chop up little sausages. In gosh, there, I'm too. hungry. I'd oh my gosh. <laughs> now, oh, that's that's beyond. Oh dear. <laughs> Let's get on with it. Get the f- <laughs> Tell us about the films. I need sausages. <laughs> I need, no, I need, I need tiny, unidentifiable sausages. <laughs> you see, I like in, to incent- in beans. <laughs> Folks, I like to incentivize Jen with sausages, but the problem is you can't hold them all back, otherwise the podcast becomes too crazed. You have to sort of <laughs> gradually Trip provide them. Yeah. Feed me tiny, tiny can sausage. doodle do my name's jen and you're listening to jen and the film critic a screen mayhem podcast with me's my film critic paul salt say hi paul cockadoodle me everyone it's paul salt the film critic at screen mayhem congrats thank you Mm. i'm still here and it's still going yeah in spite of what everybody assumed and hoped in spite of what the weather has personally tried to do to you Oh god, nothing has pushed me towards the cinema bit more than God's fiery hand this week, <laughs> I can assure you. It's been absolutely lovely. Mm, air-conditioned rooms. Oh, air-conditioned rooms for many hours. I'm going in there oh. to sleep. <laughs> Are you sure you want to watch Elvis at midnight? It's two, and a, it's two hours and 45 minutes. Oh. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Play it twice. <laughs> yeah. All night screenings. <laughs> of just Elvis. Sign just Elvis. So uh, I, can I take it then that you have seen Elvis? I may have seen Elvis. The thing is, I actually thought we were going to be a little uh, thin this uh, this particular week. I was looking at the film releases after our last episode and I identified four significant films for me to watch. Mm. But the thing about movies is it's a very malleable, kind of changeable environment. And hey, sometimes our podcast gets pushed back a week. And so now I have nine. Oh, good. <laughs> yes. So let's let's get going so that we can get you your sausages at a reasonable time. <laughs> I'm giving you two minutes per film. <laughs> that's fair. That's more than more than I need for four Love and Thunder, which ever since seeing the Simone Gertz video, I do just want to call Tor. 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 Love and Thunder. Love and Thunder. <laughs> that was very scandy. Thank you. I've been working hard on it ever since I watched that Eurovision film. Oh, God. Was that, wait, the one with um, Will Ferrell in it? Will Ferrell in Yeah. I keep calling him Farrell or Ferrell. <laughs> Ferrell, Will Ferrell. I don't know how Canada works, but Pharrell, K Pharrell Pharrell. We mm-hmm. have 
uh, Tor, Love and Thunder, Chris Hemsworth returns. There's four in the latest Marvel movie. Oh god, how do you summarize this plot? He's just... After the events of Avengers uh, Endgame, he's finding himself a bit listless. He doesn't know what to do with himself. Um, mm. And then Christian Bale attacks um, oh. as himself, but also Gore the God Butcher, <laughs> a man who is disillusioned with gods in general and so wants to kill as many as he can using his special sword and a few other things. Mm. Um, and so Chris gotta has have to... have a purpose. You gotta have a purpose in life, and I think that's admirable. And I mm. think his commitment is really quite something. He's a very sympathetic villain, I think. Hmm. Yeah, and then he is joined by allies. Tessa Thompson returns as Valkyrie, who apparently is based on Brunhilde, and I just want them to have the courage to call her Brunhilde. Yeah, it's a great name. Let's make that name hot again, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, Matiti returns as uh, playing Korg. Um, mm. And then a new ally is Natalie Portman returns as Jane Foster, who is now also a Mighty Four. Huh? Yeah, she has her own. Well, she has her own lightning abilities now because she is suffering from cancer, um, and in a desperate bid to try and um, undo the cancer, she um, went and managed to reassemble the shards of uh, Mjolnir, Uh the special hammer that Thor used to carry (laughs) before it got smashed in, I think, Ragnarok. I'm not entirely sure. These movies have become far too much. Nevertheless, yes, the one with Kate Blanchett. That right? was the one with Kate Blanchett, rather charmingly. Yes. and that one was yes. Yeah, so that was Taika Waititi as well, and, mm. Ta- and Taika now returns to this, directing, directing and co-writing with Jennifer Caton Robinson, okay, uh, who is new to the franchise to the MCU in general. <clears throat> now, I would have hoped that if Waititi were to make a bad Marvel movie, it would be because he got too ambitious and had to strain against the expectations of the Marvel formula whilst desperately trying to do something bold and new and exciting. Very much like I think happened with uh, Eternals, with Chloe Zhao, as discussed previously in an mm. earlier episode. But in fact, this isn't terribly good, mm. and it's only really just trying to be another Marvel movie. Oh. So it's kind of dispiriting in that sense. It's not. It's not very funny. And oh. includes such oh. classic zingers as they're standing right behind me, aren't they? Oh, no. And, well, that just happened. Oh, dear. It's yeah. behind you, Thor. Oh, it's not great. And huh? it's, huh? It's, it's, it's trying to do this whole sort of indie movie approach, I think, with Thor being really, like, trying to find himself. Mm. But those moments are very... They're, they're relegated to a few sequences that mm. aren't terribly involving. It's very com- compartmentalized. You have the, um, what would you call it? The sort of before trilogy moment of um, him, his relationship with Jane Foster, which again is just a short montage of them growing further apart, which is largely treated for gags. Mm. And that was a problem I had with Ragnarok as well, is that it undercuts a lot of its uh, dramatic moments with with the humor, making it not very... Yeah, engaging fair. even when big things happened like asgard coming to an end or you know uh anthony hopkins character dying you know nothing really landed with much weight and that continues here we're still under underscoring dramatic moments with awkward comedy and the film is is trying to be about death and meaning and children specifically but the children thing in particular just feels so uh awkwardly shoved in mm. every so often four interacts with kids and it's like why is this happening? And then the ending happens. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's why that's been happening. The action is not engaging or involving. There's no moments of real choreography or fun or like any sense that you're actually watching anything with any weight or scale. It's been a long time since The Winter Soldier. I mean, there's been good action sequences since, but The the Winter Soldier was the last Marvel movie I really thought had good Mm. action in it. I'm feeling quite far away from that now. 
good things. Christian Bale is here as Gore, the God Killer, and it's really fun to see Christian Bale ham it up. Yeah. Like, he's been big before in things like American Psycho and, um, oh, his work with uh, David O. Russell, I think his name is, the guy who did American House. Oh, shit, yeah. Sorry, I forgot. <laughs> ah, yes. Yes. Yes, he wasn't that. I don't like American he, Hustle. I think that's... No. Yeah. But I do always enjoy Christian Bale's performances. Yeah, yeah and it's fun to watch him go big. He's, mm. He said he was inspired by Aphex's twi- Aphex Twins' Come to Daddy video, which is a mad point of reference. Huh? Um, Let me just Google that. <laughs> go ahead and go- watch that. A- I'll... Aphex. Aphex Twin, Come to Daddy. It's the one where they, all the kids have his face and chase an old woman into an underpass. Wow. Great. Yeah. He's, oh, he's going that for look- that energy. <laughs> oh my gosh, this looks terrifying. It's yeah, it's kind of grotesque. Quick... So I guess it's the face on the screen. Aphex Twins, uh, very iconic face on the screen saying, I will eat your soul. Oh yeah. Yeah. Come to daddy. Are you actually watching it? I am. <laughs> it's a very good video and it's a good track. Yeah, it's very but... good. That's terrible. I mean, what it's interesting. It? <laughs> I enjoy it as a child of the 90s grunge. So... That's what he's going for, and he he manages it in very interesting ways. Tessa Thompson is back, and I enjoy her. Her mm-hmm. dialogue isn't very good, but I enjoy what she's bringing to it. I like her. Yeah, I enjoy Tessa Thompson. Russell Crowe is here playing Zeus. Okay. And he's decided to do it with a dodgy Greek accent. Okay. And it's a lot of fun. It's, <laughs> it's straight up Harry Enfield doing Stavros. <laughs> it's, you know, hello, everybody, pips. It's <laughs> that kind of thing. Hello, just... I am Zeus. <laughs> yes, it's it's that sort of thing. If you can't be quiet, I'll ask you to go. It's so ridiculous, and it's wonderful. Wow. And God bless him for doing that, okay. um, and being up for doing that, and playing this pompous, big, ridiculous character. There are sequences that stand out as being quite entertaining, but even the ones I'm thinking of now are tainted by very embarrassing attempts at comedy. It's just a very underwhelming film, and one that I found a little irritating. And that is disappointing. And at this stage, I must say, I really am starting to feel this Marvel fatigue, even though I quite enjoyed the Multiverse of Madness. Mm. I've yet to see something that really has just come out and really justified carrying this on after Endgame. Um, Maybe No Way Home. No Way Home was good. But again, there's something just a little self-satisfied about that and what it was trying to do. I don't know. It's just the, the landscape of Marvel as we look ahead, especially with all these endless TV shows now, is just looking to be a slightly grim prospect. And I wonder, considering that Thor, uh, Thor Love and Thunder, <laughs> has just um, suffered a huge record-breaking drop between its opening weekend and second weekend, uh-huh. um, I wonder if actually people are starting to feel the same way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. It's just inhumanly... It's not. It's just not possible to keep up with all of this. <laughs> No, it's not. And it's getting more and more insular. And it's actually becoming more and more like the comic books upon which they were based, which, oh, you know, would start off with a few strands that would have occasional crossovers. And then eventually, when you're 20 years down the road, 30 years down yeah. the road, it's a nightmare to the point where I remember being a comic book fan in the <clears throat> noughties and being like, oh, Civil War, this sounds cool. And it was so full of references to other storylines and so f- immensely immersed in its own lore there was just no chance of me actually being able to gain a foothold there i mean what you don't need to anymore there's so many other better indie publications now (laughs) well indeed short runs became a massive thing and i Mm. think maybe that's what we're going to see happen here is that things will become more self-contained again i think they have to because the 
their target audience now was not alive for Iron Man. Iron Man was oh 14 gosh. years ago. So when they're aiming for teenagers, you're looking at people who, you know, when do most people go to the cinema for the first time? Sort of four or five kind of years old? Maybe. And even then you're probably not seeing Marvel. It's a bit dark. So mm. yeah, it's it's longer. It's older than your target audience now. So Do you think that's I their think... target audience? Because teenagers Teens. have not a lot of money. Although on the other hand, I did go to the cinema a lot more as a teen. Exactly. I I think almost tickets. all of well, you know what, whether whether or not it's fair, mm. I think that executives mm. figure that teenage boys in particular are the easiest people to try and get money from, so they do yeah. market a lot fair of films enough. that way. Mm. It is not backed up by the statistics of who is actually going to see films. Uh, that much has to be said, yeah. which tends to be not only a lot older but a lot more female as well. Mm. So that's one of the great historical mm. in, inexplicable things uh, yeah. in history is that cynical marketing men pitch to a, a younger but less demanding demographic even if they represent less of the overall market yeah it's interesting isn't it yeah <clears throat> it is but anyway yeah so uh, fall off and thunder if you are on the fence about it i actually know quite a lot of people who can't really be bothered like i no. remember when avengers 2 came out there was like a group of us and we were like yes new marvel movie let's go and like we queued up and like you know went to one of the first screenings we could and there was a big bunch of us it's so ubiquitous now that it's hard to imagine gathering that much enthusiasm for no. any any one given project. Even the original Thor, I didn't enjoy it all that much. No. I remember that being very good. I remember two being awful. Yep. I enjoyed Ragnarok, but you're right. Yes. Thinking back, the death, you know, the weighty moments maybe didn't have that much yeah. weight. But I enjoyed it because I thought it was funny. And I was like, this is what we need is a funny. Yeah. Because he's a good actor and it's a good character. It's well, fun. it had the potential to be fun, so... Yeah. Well, TZ basically made the decision to turn him into a himbo, which is yeah. not necessarily <laughs> a bad thing. You know, it's a good thing, but then where do we go with it? You know, and, and at this stage, it is just about doing gags, and I just didn't feel like the emotional payoff was here. And it felt like, to some extent, we were cribbing notes from Guardians of the Galaxy, which, again, was True. eight years ago. Jeez. And still holds up better than this, I think. Mm, but is. anyway, there it is. I'm awarding it. Just two stars. Just which the I think two. Is wow. Just the two, which might even be less than I awarded the Eternals. So, gosh, yeah, yeah, Rachel. yeah. Getting the Dude, bin also... tour. I know. Sorry, tour. Let's see the scat. Let's see Icelander uh, Icelanders um, mm. come in and make a an actual original film about their own folklore, <laughs> in which people say everything correctly. Heimdall. Heimdall. Mjolnir. Odin. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not making it up. <laughs> I'm vaguely remembering a YouTube video I watched many years ago. <laughs> I think you showed me the YouTube video. Yeah, I think I did. Yeah. Odin's wife, Frigg. 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 It's good stuff. Just watch The Northman. Let's all just go watch The Northman yeah. by that American man. <laughs> uh, but he hired actual Scandies, so that's important. Cool. Speaking of actual Scandies, nope, no connection whatsoever. <laughs> the Grey Man. The Grey Man? What? I've never, I've not even heard of this. What is this? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to so come okay. back to Sorry, that. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> No, you're right. You haven't. Nobody has. And it's Netflix's fault. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Okay. This is a new summer blockbuster from the directors okay. of biggest movies in the world, Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, starring Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans and a cast-studded supporting cast. And it's an espionage thriller with giant action set pieces where they're fighting each other. What do you mean you've never heard of it? Huh? I yeah. genuinely have not heard of this. I know I've had COVID for I the know. past two weeks. No, no, no. <laughs> it's because we'll, we'll come to why you'll come to why, but nobody's heard of it. 
this movie is flying right under the radar. So the plot is Ryan Gosling is um, it's I think it's an adaptation of a graphic novel. Ryan Gosling is on mm. is in prison. He's going to be there for life. Billy Bob Thornton comes and sees him Billy and Bob. says, "Look, Billy Bob, Billy Bob Thornton. Um, yeah, I'm not that creepy if you get to know me, <laughs> Billy Bob Thornton. He um he comes along and says, "Hey, if you work for the CIA forever and we put you on a lot of dangerous missions, you won't have to be in jail." He's like, "Yeah, sounds good." Mm. So he goes off. He has a Something comes to his attention that suggests, hey, you remember that company that you're basically now indentured slave to? Mm. Well, they're not as good as they seem. <gasps> oh, no, they're a bit sinister. So now he's on the run and the um, uh, the CIA hire uh, Chris Evans as a mustache wielding douchebag um, who uses like alt uh, insane tactics to go after uh, to go after him. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, cat and mouse thing as, uh, Ryan Gosling is trying to save Billy Bob's, uh, daughter, um, uh, niece actually, I think, but he's looking after her. Um, and also get this sensitive information about corruption to the press <clears throat> whilst Chris Evans tries to stop him. The film is fine. It's quite fun. Mm. I think it's got a fun little plot, which, you know, thirty years ago, this would have been Jean Claude Van Damme and Mickey Rourke, you know, <laughs> okay. going up against each other. It would have it's suitably cheesy with lots of you know silly lines that are kind of funny, but it's more just funny that they're saying them like really earnestly. Yeah. Um, it's about a world of assassins without being too derivative of John Wick, and it moves along quite nicely. And the action scenes are okay. I can say this of the action scenes: the kindest thing I can say about almost any Hollywood action scene these days, it made me want to imagine how it would look if someone was good was making it. Oh no. <laughs> Which is high praise. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I, I think like, oh, how would John Woo do this? Or how would Michael Mann or Christopher Nolan, you mm. know, did, I put the work in and imagined if it wasn't just full of CGI fire everywhere mm. and fake gunshots and was cut too much. Um, and when I did that, I found that what had been staged was uh, quite exciting it's interesting. They just, de- I think they've decided each one of our fight scenes is going to be defined by the way in which we use light. Um, okay. The first fight happens in a firework pit. Um, they fall <laughs> into a fireworks pit. So there's fireworks going off everywhere and they're kind of, you know, pulling down the tubes from which the fireworks are launching and pointing them at each other. And That sounds you know, like a fun concept. It's quite a fun concept and there's a lot of light going on and it's kind of interesting. The next fight scene, they're on a plane and the um, Ryan Gosling gets out of flare and starts hitting people with the flare. So once again, you've got light and smoke mm. and, you know, it's really interesting. But, you know, all CGI, of course. Mm. Um, and then you've got a flashlight fight later on. It does have a slightly fake feel to it, it has to be said. But then again, it's Hollywood. Yeah. So, yeah, that you've got all of that. You've got Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans. Ryan Gosling's doing a perfectly serviceable action movie lead kind of performance. Chris Evans is doing his mustache twirling best mm-hmm. uh, to be just despicable, which is a great deal of fun. Um, Ana de Armas is here. Ana de Armas. Ana de Armas. Ana de Armas. And she is, she's great. She's a lot of fun and she gets to kick some butt. Mm-hmm. Uh, she doesn't get the chance to use all of her charm, which she knows that she has, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, she's here. Uh, Jessica Hennick is here and is underused. Yeah. Um, but I'm always happy to see Jessica Hennick. Uh, she's great. And um, she gets to be a bit despicable, which Ooh. is fun, and sort of match Evan's douche energy, which is great fun to watch. She doesn't kick any ass, which we know she can do. Yes. We know she can do, thanks to um, Iron Fist and um, the behind-the-scenes footage of Jess- of the Matrix Resurrections. So I almost called it Jessica Resurrections there, <laughs> which... Uh, Kind of gives away my headspace a little bit. But yeah, my big problem with the movie is that nobody's heard of it. And very few people will get to experience it the way it should be seen. Because it really is a quintessential summer blockbuster. It needs to be in multiplexes for the Saturday morning crowd of teenagers. Mm. You know, 
But Netflix have done a begrudging limited release in independent cinemas. I saw it at the Prince Charles, and it's also in Everyman and Showcase cinemas. Okay. Baffling. Um, Which I assume they're doing to keep costs down, um, and in order to not distract from where they really want people to watch it, which is on Netflix when it gets released this Friday. Uh Uh-huh. And... I just find that so depressing. I know Netflix is hemorrhaging users right now, in spite of producing two of the most popular TV shows ever right now, which is Stranger Things and Better Call Saul. Mm. It's still hemorrhaging users. And so it's like, you're you're good at TV. You must be able to find ways to make TV work as a business model. Stop coming after cinema. Yeah. Leave us alone. This should have been in movie theaters. I'm, ugh. No. It's frustrating because the 355 got released with more fanfare than this. I remember seeing adverts and YouTube yeah. videos for the 355. And this is so much better than the 355. <laughs> I'm giving it three stars. Okay. It's so a fun action better. movie. It's so much better. It's like two whole stars better I than think the 355. I think 355 had very few stars. Oh, God. It's, yeah. Mm. I know. It was not good. And this is fun. And it just... Oh. It, I'm I'm irritated that it's basically going straight to... You know, when I was a kid... It was a made-for-TV movies, mm. was the concept. Made-for-TV or straight-to-video. Yeah. And for me, when a movie gets made and then arbitrarily put in cinemas for like a week and then put straight onto Netflix, for me, that's a TV movie. Yeah. You know? It's to be seen on a small screen or a phone or a smartwatch or however it is. Netflix wants you to watch its programs. <laughs> it's yeah. just... I'm sorry to be a snob about it. I know <laughs> some people can't access the cinema or get out to see them, but it's just... This is such an important experience to me. It's the mm. cinema. It's the giant screen. It's the sensory isolation. The dark lights everywhere else. Shared dreaming. Everybody together. Communal experience. Nothing compares. If you knew how few new movies I watched during lockdown when cinemas weren't open, you'd see that this is not optional for me. This is quintessential. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I sunk back into watching old movies I knew well wow. from previous cinematic experiences. Thank God the London Film Festival was still able to go on in 2020. Mm. Otherwise... I'd have been very hard pushed. Yeah, I just, I just want to make sure you were at least watching films, Paul. Because I know what happens was, if you don't I? watch films, <laughs> and I worry about your health. Yeah, I mean, watching movies, I did get shingles. So, yeah, but I, yeah, that one time. <laughs> <laughs> it's way worse if you don't trust me. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to argue that wasn't from the watching of the films themselves, and more the sitting in an in a small chair for days on end. <laughs> It's more the sort and of complete lack of concern. Yeah, yeah, stressfully not sleeping, yeah. trying to fit in work around it. Yeah, um, not seeking medical treatment once it started to hurt. Yeah, yeah that the, that kind of thing of is things. probably what yeah. contributed contributing factors to yeah. the shingles. Um, whilst you were talking about that film, I got slightly distracted oh. thinking about uh, Jackie Chan. Yes, and how he's good he's at action. Good. Did we he's book great at tickets action. to go see Spy Cop? Super, um, <laughs> Spy super Cop. Hero no, Cop. Uh, Police Story Three. I don't think we did. We should. We should do that. Yeah. Police Story 3. Let's get Police Story mm. 3 in. Let's get Toy Story 3 in. Toy Story. Toy Story Police, man. Uh, but you know, and that, that image of, you know, you just trying to get your film critic to see more movies, pumping medication into him <laughs> and sending him off in order to, you know, make your bread. Well, it puts me in mind of a certain Mr. Elvis Presley. <laughs> Dance for me, film boy. <laughs> Mama needs um, her money. <laughs> Oh, God, you've become Colonel Tom Parker. <laughs> Surprise. I would like you to call me Colonel from now on. <laughs> I, will, I have I just as that. much right to it. Yeah, you do, actually. I know. <laughs> exactly as much. 
So yes, this is Baz Luhrmann's biopic of Elvis Presley, uh, portrayed by Austin Butler, and specifically his relationship with Colonel Tom Parker, played hilariously by Tom Hanks. Um, mm. It does eventually kind of cover Presley's entire life through flashbacks okay. and you know various things, but it starts with Parker ruminating on his part in Elvis's life and his downfall, suggesting that he has been unfairly cast as the villain of this story. Mm. And then at that point of rumination, it suddenly just goes full Lerman. Like, okay. suddenly the camera's flying around everywhere. We've got, like, um, non-diegetic, like, text written on the side of, like, showbiz lights. And the style is huge and ridiculous. And, like, laugh out loud funny mm. at first. But the longer you spend with this, and maybe this is what I missed with Moulin Rouge, because I never did watch the whole thing. I eventually <gasps> got... I know, I got frustrated by its opening sequences what? and had to had to run. What? But no... No, stop. <laughs> stop right now. <laughs> we need to go watch Moulin Rouge. Yeah. Oh, God, okay. It's very I'm good, more up Paul. For it now. I'm more up for it now. I do want to see it at a cinema, though, but I'm sure the Prince Ugh. Charles will oblige at some stage. It would be good in a cinema. I would like to see it in a cinema. Let's look out for it being in a cinema. Um, yeah, the style is ridiculous, but then as it's going, it so perfectly starts to fit in with the story it's telling mm. and the experience it's trying to communicate, which is one of ecstasy. Mm. In an early sequence, we see the first public performance of Elvis Presley. He's wearing a very large, loose pink suit, and he's pensively uh, pacing around outside. And then he decides he's going to do his thing, and he strides into the auditorium. Mm. And the camera makes him look like a wave, mm. like this unstoppable thing that's just crashing into this um, into this place. He stands shyly before this hostile crowd, looking gorgeous. And then, yeah, someone heckles in the crowd, and then he just starts playing. And Lerman emphasizes the bass and the drum. Mm. And there's this crazy electronic guitar sound that's playing like this distorted sound. And then rapidly intercutting between Elvis's like spasming dance moves mm. and the involuntary convulsions and screams of the women in the crowd. And it just just have this ecstatic effect, which just yeah. completely won me over to the whole thing and take it much more as a sort of experience. Mm. Because it very, it almost clumsily wanders around or like charges forward in his life very quickly. And then every so often it'll slow down and you're like, oh, whoa, okay. Um, the moment where Martin Luther King gets killed, we see him see it on the news. And then we cut to the next scene. And because of the momentum we've had so far, I expect this to be years later, <laughs> but it's not. It's still the same night. And I'm just like, oh, ah, okay. like I just like whiplash from, <laughs> oh God, I just expected us to be propelled further and further through this life. But <laughs> The opposite okay, of fine. whiplash, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> Too slow. <laughs> Just like the sudden stop. Choking you know, like on I the led slowness. Into it. Like, ah. <laughs> the other big standout sequence, which I think is the highlight of the film because it perfectly encapsulates everything the film is trying to achieve, is the first Vegas show. Uh -huh. So Presley has gotten sick of his um, very safe image that uh, Parker has helped him to craft. Mm. And he wants to be you know, exciting again. He mm. wants to be an artist again. And he wants to travel the world. But Parker doesn't want him to do this because as we find out, he doesn't have a passport so he wouldn't be able to tour the world. Mm -hmm. So... You know, he he wants Elvis to stay where he can just continue to milk him mm. and, you know, just extract money from him. So he convinces him to play one night in the newly founded um, International Hotel in Vegas. And he gives him complete control over the production with an unlimited budget because the hotel oh, wow. are paying for it. <laughs> Quick montage of him assembling the performers and rehearsing. And then we launch into just the spectacle mm. of this Vegas show. And... You know, Lerman with cinematographer Mandy Walker really managed to make it look like a 70s concert movie, like Nashville or The Last Waltz. It just, it has that beautiful look. And 
it looks gorgeous and we cross cut with Parker signing away Elvis's life and financial freedom to the hotel. <laughs> um, so we have this massive rendition of Suspicious Minds that just totally <laughs> rejuvenates that familiar track whilst also undercutting the whole thing with this kind of sickening opportunism that is going to end up defining Elvis's you know, entire life. Mm. And yeah, it's interesting. It's just, it's a wonderful sequence. And the film is a f- celebration of Elvis and his impact on popular culture and the power of his music. Mm. But it's also a film that's going to mourn the man he could have been had he been allowed to go further. Yeah. You know, he, th- at one point early on, he's receiving complaints and even death threats about the sexual nature of his performance. And so Parker convinces him to scale it back, mm. you know, and just become a bit more safe, a bit more family friendly. And you know, crucially, he convinces him not to comment on the turbulent times that they are living in. Mm. You know, they're, they're in the 60s, there's Vietnam, there's, you know, yeah. assassinations everywhere. And he isn't allowed to become a countercultural icon like the Beatles or the Stones he, because he has to reliably keep making money for Parker to fuel his gambling addiction. And so, and, you know, the film absolutely does not forgive Elvis for just kind of accepting it. Yeah. Because ultimately what he wants more than anyone else is adoration. Mm. More than anything else. So he wants the adoration of the crowds. And, you know, he did at least in the early stages before he, you know, became kind of entrapped, make these choices and decide that he wanted the luxury. He wanted the money and he wanted the adoration of fans. So he did turn his back on those opportunities. Um, and then once Parker properly gets his ho- hooks into him and we get the sequences of him being just a prisoner in Vegas, mm. you know, sequences in which he just gets pumped full of drugs so that he can just stagger onto stage every night. They're quite terrifying mm. and really very upsetting. So the only thing I would say is it does skirt around the race issue. Mm. Um, it very clearly demonstrates where Elvis's music came from. Yeah. And actually compares Elvis singing. Like there's these moments where you'll get like a split screen with, you know, this soul singer playing the original, you know, track that he has then stolen and commercialized alongside of Elvis, uh, like in a duet. And it's really interesting, but it doesn't, it doesn't go too far into the deeply racist music industry that seized mm. on Elvis as a chance to sell black music to white people without having to pay black talent hmm. to do it. Yeah. Um, if you want more on that, check out Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which was one of the movies I watched in the lockdown. So I yeah. watched a few. Uh, but it doesn't ignore the issue and it pays fair respect to um, the talent that fueled Presley. So credit for that. But yeah, it could have potentially gone further in showing that it's keen to point out that Elvis loved these things and these people and this music. Mm. But yeah, it has to be said that he did profit from an industry that wanted him to succeed and for the you know, black performers sure. to fail. Last note was just on performers. Austin Butler is fantastic. He's gorgeous. Mm. He might be more beautiful than young Elvis um, when he comes out in the early things with like the long hair and the makeup and, you know, just looking, you know, like this bizarre kind of feminine kind of figure but also just incredibly masculine um and he is very beautiful he's gorgeous that man um and he's gonna be in dune part two and i hope he's playing the one that (gasps) sting played yes he um, must be there's no other character he could be playing he's got to be playing the air to um he's got to be playing sting he's got to be playing sting playing who is it (laughs) yeah (laughs) the heir to the evil empire yeah yeah absolutely the harkons oh oh, somebody really interesting has been cast as uh the Emperor, and I can't remember who it is. Ooh, the God, he's Kadisha so Empire. beautiful. He's so f- so gorgeous is the thing. And so Pretty. he's... Abs- but he's also got the voice, and he's got the movement. Is and he I singing? Saw the movement- yeah, he's singing. Wow. Um, and he's got the voice, he's got the movement, and, and, you know, just little throwaway lines. He's got the cadence of the man. Mm. You know, just uh, where, where Colonel Tom Parker says, this has nothing to do with us. And, you know, he just says, 
this has everything to do with us <laughs> and it's just oh, oh it's just that, the, yeah. the, uh, the way he's able to just like blur it together like early on he says something to the mic check guy just like is that gonna be okay <laughs> like and it's just really quick the way he talks kind of shy staccato kind yeah. of thing and kind of nervous energy that's just absolutely gorgeous and very compelling to watch um and then tom hanks as colonel tom parker is he's hamming the heck out of it and <laughs> you've got to enjoy that he's just going yeah. hell for leather just Fun. madness oh gosh wouldn't it be the best to just be like given one of these hammy roles in something that's why yeah. you do a, a superhero film it's just like yeah i'll play Ooh, the yeah. villain yes please <laughs> superhero film's time. interesting that, because um elvis compares himself to a superhero mm. in his childhood when he's reading like um uh i think it's captain marvel uh that he <laughs> loves and it's a way that in which tom parker is able to manipulate him um by using his sort of childhood fascination with these Im- with this imagery but the actual soundtrack, the moments between the Elvis songs, does feel very superhero-y. Mm. You've got these deep foreboding cellos and little staccato strings. And yeah, there's a superhero feel to the the, the music, which is very good. Um, but yes, there's a moment early on where Parker says, um, no, it's it's Elvis is with his mother and says, you're my, you're my girl, mama. Ain't nothing gonna come between us. And then <laughs> Parker, like in a non, in like a, non-diegetic moment just leers into screen and says what a bet (laughs) (laughs) just full-on broadbents at the screen (laughs) oh very good it's very good it's very silly and like the elvis family have come out and said that this feels like a fair representation of you know what happened and what they think of their father and the austin butler encapsulated um, elvis better than anyone they've ever done it goes beyond parody yeah it's a i don't know how to explain Go on, you explain. You have the words about the films. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's not an Elvis impression. He is actually, like, encapsulating the man and he's creating a living, breathing person. Mm. Although, having said that, he does visit his family quite a lot and the family don't have his voice. Um, <laughs> okay. And I was like, that makes it a little more inexplicable. But then I thought it'd be a bit more ridiculous if they all did. <laughs> you right there, son? son? I'm all right there, Pa. You right there, Ma? Son. I'm all right there, son. <laughs> Dinner's nearly ready. It's on the table. They're passing salt back and forth. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you very, very much. much. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Marvel's left the building. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's very it's it's good. It's good stuff. Um, I really like this. I'm giving it five stars. I thought it oh, was great. Oh, just, that's yeah. good. I did actually. I wanted to see this. I might yeah, still I make recommend. it out. Uh, try and see it in a cinema mm. if you can, because yeah, it, the biggest screen possible. And I love that this did play in IMAX and you know played in some dodgy. <laughs> big things and i hope that this picks up a cult's uh following and shows in these spaces because yeah it's a it's a great little movie cool very good <laughs> not little at all it's huge <laughs> two hours and 45 minutes yeah, of long. just spectacle yeah yeah the two hours and 45 minutes and air conditioning there oh <sighs> this is the time of year to see it yeah. that's what summer blockbusters have always been about it's yeah. about escaping from the heat escaping from nature <laughs> and sticking a big middle a big middle finger up yeah. at god yeah yeah <laughs> can't believe you haven't seen moulin rouge i'm so sorry no you're not <laughs> i just i i tried to watch it as a teen and i wasn't ready i wasn't ready <sighs> yeah for what fair it okay teen yeah <clears throat> it doesn't I teenage boy yeah. i wasn't even ready to have disney back in my life yet i was too messed up so oh it's just... no it's it's hopelessly romantic and it's a random yeah. it's they're constantly singing out of the blue i think it's a lot yeah, it's, it's it's putting modern music in a classical setting was something i, I just i remember finding it vaguely embarrassing um, yeah, I think it goes beyond. It's camp. It's camp. <laughs> well, indeed. But it's yeah. also sad and some really yeah. good scenes. Drama. I love it. Yeah. Mm. Hey, I enjoyed um, 
Romeo plus Juliet. Mm-hmm. I haven't Baz seen Lerman that one actually. Ah, I don't know why. Do a Lerman double. A Lerman double. So wait, did you not have a teenage obsession with Leonardo DiCaprio like no. every other person our age? I didn't. Oh. No, I loved Christian Bale and... Um... <gasps> From Empire of the Sun. I don't know what he was in. it. <laughs> yeah. From doing the voice of the sidekick in Pocahontas. <laughs> the Who sidekick. Yeah, he did. Yeah. John Smith, right? Yeah, John Smith's sidekick. John Smith was Mel Gibson and then his mate who uh, comes and gets Pocahontas at one stage is Christian Yes, Bale. that's it. The one who dies? Is yeah. he the one who gets hit, shot? Oh, hit yes. I think like yes, that. he does. Or he gets injured. I don't know if he dies. I think at one stage he gets sent after Pocahontas and, you know, mm. he has to go out and, um, you know, he finds like a Native American who's like, where is she? <laughs> what did where I like Where are the leaves from? going? I don't know what I liked him from. It was Batman, <laughs> I guess. American It Psycho? was Batman. Batman was out when I was a teenager. Okay. 2005. Yeah, I was 15. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, probably that. When did Romeo plus Juliet come out? 95? Oh, okay, that's a lot earlier. Oh, if we're talking that young. Yeah. It's real film crushes? DiCaprio was the big girlhood crush for a lot of people. Yeah, it never worked for me. Which is why um, everyone got really blindsided when he appeared in The Beach. Yes. A very dark movie (laughs) that nobody was expecting. Yeah. I don't think that film would have been seen by as many uh, people. No, probably not. Just probably Danny Boyle hardcores, and even they mm. weren't happy about it. Yeah. Um, mm. Heath Ledger. Oh, sure. Yeah. And um, Orlando Bloom. Ah, yeah. So mm. Bloom was uh, apparently quite the draw. He was just, it's that thing. It's like why you like te- It's like why you like boy band members, because they, they're yeah. completely harmless yeah. and desexualized. Yes. So he was just yeah. pretty. I enjoy uh, Nell's uh, teenage obsession with Canoe. Yeah. I think, that's quite ho- I think that's quite wholesome. It is very wholesome. There's a lot to be said about Canoe. Mm. Yeah. Ah, speaking of Canoe. Nope, again, there's no segues that I can make work no. this week. Uh, the Black Phone. The Black Phone. Not heard the of this Black either. Phone. Well, okay then. Mm. <laughs> this one is, to be fair, a little outside of your potential yeah. area of interest. Sure. Yes, Scott Derrickson returns to horror six <laughs> years after Doctor Strange. <laughs> His first horror. His first horror. Um, he made a quite a name for himself in this genre, mm. um, having made The Exorcism of Emily Rose and Sinister. Uh-huh. Here he directs the story of a young boy named Finney, played by Mason Mason Thames. Mm. And he lives in a small town where someone is abducting children and killing them. Ooh. Uh, killing them is definitely the worst part. Mm. I mean, of the two. Neither's good, but, <laughs> you know, the killing them, that's, that's not on. Yeah. It's the late 70s, and Finney's childhood has all of the Stephen King-esque small-town childhood um, you know, that we all feel that we've had mm. thanks to cinema. Mm. And as you may expect, there's darkness lurking behind every picket fence, mm. although this is actually more chain link fence territory. Um, Finney is kidnapping... Uh, yeah, Finney is, is actually kidnapped by the terrifying Grabber, played with absolutely sublime over-the-top menace by Ethan Hawke, who pitches him as a kind of Michael Jackson-style boy who never grew up, who sort of instantly flits from childlike giggling to harsh indifference to bouts of furious anger. It's a very Creepy. compelling monster. Yeah, very sinister. <laughs> you see. <laughs> uh, the grabber traps Finney in his basement where he plans to eventually kill him, but that's when Finney notices the black phone, Ooh. which every so often rings, and he realizes that the people on the other side are the other victims of the grabber trying to communicate methods of survival to the boy. Oh, interesting. 
Yeah, so it's a great premise because you get to see, you know, you're locked in a small room with Finny, but there's all these little secrets that the previous boys have sort of tried to, or previous escape attempts Ooh. that are there that he's able to capitalize on. This is the best Stephen King film made this century, and it has absolutely nothing to do with Stephen King. It just has all the elements of a Stephen King feeling story, mm-hmm. but it manages to coalesce into something that's just much more satisfying than any recent King adaptations. <laughs> uh, the menace is real and palpable. Uh, and although Finney's home life is a tad cliched, you do want him to succeed and end up sort of feeling for him. Mm. And the sequences of tension work really well, the sort of cat and mouse relationship that Finney has with this guy, this terrifying guy. Um, and it's very reminiscent of 10 Cloverfield Lane mm. um, and sort of just wanting to see the person get out. This claustrophobic feeling. Uh, the supporting characters are a bit stock, but uh, played very well, I think, by pretty much the entire cast. So... Yeah, I'd say it's just a very effective and fairly straightforward horror film that isn't really saying anything much more than your standard, you're you're stronger than you know, coming of age style Mm. story. But it's very compelling and enjoyable in a grisly kind of way. But I would say this might be Scott Derrickson's best. It's been a while since I've seen Emily Rose, but this might be the best one he's done. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's just a really compelling and absorbing experience that saw me, yeah, really on the edge of my seat, you know, hoping Finney would make it out. Cool. Using the black phone. The black Four stars. Four stars. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, yeah. We won't, won't see that one. On oh, yeah. Sure. Oh, of course. We'll uh, never see that one. We'll see yeah. Elvis. Probably won't bother with anything else we've mentioned so far. Yep. Fair. Yeah. Okay. What was the second thing? The, f- the one that doesn't no one's heard of. Oh, the gray man. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 yeah fair enough. That's a bit of a laugh. Bit of a laugh. Maybe. Again. <laughs> Meh. There's better stuff. Yeah. Uh, including, I think, and this is where we're going to get a little contentious up in here, a new film called Where the Crawdads Sing. Ooh, yes. Yes. Interesting. Adaptation of the novel by Delia mm-hmm. Owens, the 2018 novel, adapted by Beast of the Southern Wild writer Lucy Alabar, mm. and directed by Olivia Newman, who directed First Match a few years ago, which is very oh, good. Oh, with so. Paul Bessnian. No? Oh. No, that's, that's perfect match. Or match... Point. That's match point. No, that's from uh, like the noughties <laughs> and his match point. And it's Paul Bettany. And uh, it's he falls in love with a riot tennis. It's about tennis. That isn't Wimbledon. Yeah. It's about it's him Wimbledon. and then they fall in love and it's tennis. I've danced. Maybe. Weren't there, two, weren't there two romantic comedies involving tennis released very close together? Wimbledon and match point. Maybe. I've not heard of Wimbledon as a... Oh. No, it's not Paul Bettany. It's Jonathan Rhys-Meyers. And Scarlett Johansson. Maybe I okay. am thinking of Wimbledon. Oh, maybe you're yeah, right t- then. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm thinking <laughs> of Wimbledon. Yes. Wait, let me see. None of Match Point 25, 2005. Wimbledon, 2004. Paul Bessany, Kirsten Dunst. Well, there you go. I mean, let's do another episode of Film Tool Combat. These two are going <laughs> to go up against each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. There we go. Wow. Yeah, we there need two Tonish romance stories. <laughs> Absolutely, we do. There's so much to tell there. Well, I got that fabulously wrong. Um, Please continue. You'd think they'd involve the word love in there somehow, right? Fifteen love? No, that's probably not great. Mm. Um, Yes, the story concerns a young woman who has been abandoned in the marshes of North Carolina in a rundown home uh, out there. Uh, One day she meets a... One day a man that she is known to have been involved with. She's ostracized by her community. Mm. She's... um, entirely living on her own out there and has been since she was a little girl when her parents abandoned her um and her siblings all left as well just sort of leaving her um 
yeah, and a man that she's known to have been involved with shows up dead, mm. and so all eyes are on her. She is accused of the murder and put on trial for her life, because they do have the de- death penalty out there. Mm. However, most of the film happens in flashback, covering the circumstances that led to her being left on her own, how she figured out how to survive, the people who helped her on her way, and um, yeah, her sort of tumultuous relationships with people from outside of the marsh. Mm. Um, The film has received something of a critical drubbing. I think it's on something like 36%. um, Apparently owing to an inconsistent tone, which is odd because I felt the tone was fairly solidly this sort of melancholic whimsy occasionally punctuated with some very cheesy moments admittedly the first kiss between her Mm. and this neighborhood boy is very over the top and i can concede that the film occasionally lapses into kitsch Mm. yeah that can happen but otherwise i have to disagree with my fellow critics because i really enjoyed it good um first and foremost you have daisy edgar jones at the in the lead role who is great she's really good as this i have this uh, bex put this really well into words when she talked about the kind of people she's um attracted to mm. she said she's attracted to people who are just quietly competent mm. and i think that does go a long way and there is something very uh, not just being attracted to but just really finding yourself invested in mm. and there's something wonderfully quietly competent about daisy edgar jones's character who just sets about figuring out how to live Mm. you know as a little girl and then as you know a a grown woman she just figures out how to live in this space how to eke out a little living and then eventually sort of find a way in which she can turn something that she cares about into something that can help her to live you have absolutely gorgeous photography uh cinematography by polly morgan Mm. who previously shot a quiet place part two and she and director newman have really lovingly rendered the carolina swamps with stunning use of light and texture to imply a real serenity to this, you know, otherwise uh, an area that tends to in movies gets used for like horror Mm. settings, you know, just the marshlands, you know, creepy outback kind of areas. And this whole thing is in fact meant to be a sort of myth busting of what lives lived out there is meant to be a, are meant to be like. It's a beautiful rendering of nature, which is then contrasted with the very harsh man-made qualities of the town, especially the prison where she ends up. So, yeah, maybe I just enjoyed this because it is the very provocative story of a woman of a woman learning to survive and stand up to the men who oppress her. I'm hoping this is going to be something of a greatest showman situation because I predict that this is going to find its audience. Mm. Younger people in particular are going to watch this and this is going to be one of those movies where people like it and then they get older and realize that it's poorly reviewed and think, oh, mm. that's a surprise. Um you know, and critics are going to decry the film as being maybe simplistic or uneven, but I'm very happy to be on the public side of this because it is already getting good write-ups from like public opinion-gauging things. Cool. Yeah, because I really loved it. I hope that young people go to see it. Also, David Strahan is here mm-hmm. as her lawyer, and he's just a wonderful, charming, sort of Atticus Finch-style guy. Oh, that's fun. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Always love a good lawyer. Oh, you got to love a good, compassionate lawyer. Mm. Four stars. Four stars. Very good. Yeah. Excellent. I've heard the book is yeah. wonderful. Yes. I'm sure the book is mm. very, very good. And that I have been be told read. to read yeah. it. Mum, I will read it. I promise. <laughs> God dang it. Yeah. Yeah. Katie's mum also really enjoyed Where the Crawdads Sing. Yeah. It's what it's a hit for the mums. Yeah. And I think the film will do well <laughs> with the mums too. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like fun. It did make me reflect though, because during it, I didn't know anything about the novel beforehand. Mm. And I did think to myself, I wonder if this was a young adult novel. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. And it occur- because it occurred to me, 
A surprising number of young adult novels are about very resilient young people living in very harsh conditions mm. in an unforgiving world and learning how to survive in it. Yeah. And that probably doesn't say many great things about our society that that really resonates and is relatable to all of our uh, young folk. It, there was a real trend, wasn't there, in the noughties and of mm. uh, post-apocalyptic survival. Post-apocalyptic? Post-apocalyptic, nope. Post-apocalyptic <laughs> survival type. Yeah. I think it's always been, I mean, a lot of young adult books are young person proves themselves to be resilient in the face of horrible yes. circumstances. It's That's just true. that sometimes that those horrible circumstances thing. are just secondary school. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. They are dreadful. And then sometimes it's living in the swamps on your own. And sometimes <laughs> it's fighting school. the capital yeah. as you're put <gasps> into a, you know, killing yeah. pit. It's all about just trying to find your place in the world. Yeah. And I'm here for it. Yeah. And I think this film is about that too. Great. Lovely. Yeah. Ah, oh, more children. Mm. Railway children. Railway? It's, what, the... What? Yeah, it's the it's the Railway Children Return. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's a sequel. A sequel's been made. Huh? Well, one of them does anyway. Uh, <laughs> the concept of Railway Children have returned <laughs> okay. in the sequel to the 1970 family film, which you've seen? Nope, but my mum loves oh, it. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an, again, it's a, it's a very... A mum is a mum friendly mm. show. All the mums are going to love the grey man mm. and the black phone, and they're going to love this because, yeah. yes, Jenny Agatha is back at the very least. Um, uh, but we have a new bunch of kids. This is set after the first film, in which the first film, if I remember correctly, I haven't seen this since I was a kid. The kids are sent out to the countryside because War? their father is involved. No, okay. because their father is involved in some sort of thing and has gone to jail, and the kids use their new suburban setting near a railway to try and advertise and petition for his release Ah, okay this movie is a sequel to that set you know 30 or 40 years afterwards um you know it's been 50 years since the film but i don't think it's been that long since um in the story because they needed to line up with the second world war Mm. and yes we have a a group of children who are leaving their homes in the city to go to the country only it's this time it's because there's a bloody war on Uh uh-huh uh a group of children are evacuated from manchester to the west riding of yorkshire Mm mm-hmm the eldest daughter is Lily, played by Bo Gadsden, a very tough-willed, no-nonsense kind of girl who looks after her young brothers. Well, all nonsense. <laughs> They're just nonsense children. Mm. And they end up living with Jenny Agatha, who's reprising her role from the original film, the only cast member to do so, and her daughter and grandson, husband implied to have died in the first war, son-in-law implied to be fighting in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has that quality that you have in sort of young people's things set during the war, which is a lot of it is inference and stuff happening mm. just off screen. Yeah, there's a lot of deep tragedy going on with these characters. And there's some fish-out-of-water stuff going on with the young Mancunians trying to fit in in the Yorkshire countryside, which doesn't make any sense to me because it's all north. <laughs> Got everything in common. Get in the bin, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> it's all it's all north of Back the Back at that gap, point, therefore, one, a person in one valley in Yorkshire <laughs> couldn't understand a person in the next valley. <laughs> so I don't know what you mean expecting manja, like Mancunians to be understood <laughs> anywhere got northern accents mm. <laughs> mm. two strikes paul first was for moulin rouge <laughs> second is for this you've got one left oh my god oh, it's mm. all going wrong ah but yes yeah, soon enough they discover the common humanity but also a young black soldier named abe played by kj uh, kj akins and he is hiding in the railway yard and he's abandoned his um unit in the american army uh due to the systemic racism he's experiencing there mm, fair so it's a fairly sweet little film that also wants to tackle some fairly large themes. Um, and it's never too early to start talking about racism. 
No. It's suitably charming and fairly whimsical. Uh, Gaston is very good as the eldest daughter. It's wonderful to see her just go around beating up bullies and mm-hmm. standing up for herself and the people she cares about. And it's just, I, I'm, this was I, what I remember being a really fun thing about the original too. It was this idea of don't underestimate kids, you know. Yeah. You know, kids, you know, showing adults how silly they were. And that that definitely maintains. Um, Jenny Agatha is still great and it's wonderful to see her in such a prominent role again. It's been a while. Once again, John Bradley has stood out um, as an exceptionally endearing presence in a film, but this is a lot better than Moonfall, and Bradley's character is much better than the conspiracy theorist he played in Moonfall. <laughs> um, he's Sam from Game of Thrones as well, um, and it's great to see him continue to get work. And yeah, here he plays a station master who's just um, incredibly endearing. Oh, I really like the guy. He's very sweet, and he has wonderful scenes with the kids, and I just love the guy. Um, it's a bit twee, as you'd probably expect, oh. and there's there's one moment of philosophizing that I'm not sure about. Mm. Uh, one of the boys is very upset about his sense of powerlessness about the awful state of the world and, you know, the war and everything that's going on. So Tom Courtney comes over and he lays some truth down from his older years and he tells the lad, things are bad now, but they won't always be. Mm. Now, we are not currently living for a world war and we no. have a lot to be grateful for for that and for previous generations and the things they've done. But if the advice is just wait and things will eventually get better... They would not have got better. Uh, Tom Courtney, the movie character, this is your second world war. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. surely the better lesson is sometimes you're going to feel powerless, sometimes the world is scary, and you're going to feel like you can't do anything about it. Just do the next right thing. Yeah. Whatever is accessible to you. That's what Frozen 2 taught us. Mm. And that's what I am going to take to my grave. That's the tattoo I'm going to get. It's Frozen 2. <laughs> Frozen 2. I heart Frozen 2. I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. I read that that quote. I really let it go again. Right thing. Let it go again. (laughs) Where did I put it now? (laughs) Speaking of Frozen Two, I do hope this finds its audience because it's a bit of a rarity nowadays—a live-action family film Mm. that doesn't have an animated bear in it. Um, I do wonder if it has been made with kids in mind, or if it is more intended for older audiences who remember the Railway Children. Yeah, I wonder whether it's more of a naming nostalgia piece. I don't know if it's going to resonate very deeply with kids these days, but hopefully hopefully they will and they'll enjoy it for, you know, these young scamps and such. Mm. I just, I would love to see some live action movies made with modern kids living in actual Britain as it is now and find endearing, sweet stories to tell about that without it being depressing kind of realist <laughs> cinema. Include <laughs> yeah. the fantasy. Yeah. Young working class kids mm-hmm. live sort of fanciful lives yeah. in difficult circumstances and that's that something a like oh what was that one son of rambo something nice like oh that, yeah british was that no that was american right was i think british? it was yeah. but yes that something would be great like yeah you know charming like and whimsical and them just having a nice time yeah and not exactly. to completely side like side like com- you know what's the word what's the word i'm thinking of side line line blow Blow something up. What's the context? Just completely surprised me with you know. Oh, blindside. Blinds. Thank you. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lovely, charming film that doesn't completely blindside me with a really tragic death halfway through, like yeah, Bridge God. to Terabithia or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Brutal. No, I, I just it's... want a nice time. Yeah. Well, you know, we've got the selfish giant. Okay. <laughs> so, that'll have to do. Mm. Um, speaking of selfish giants, Mad God. 
Mad God. I've not heard Mad of God. these films, Paul. You can't just make <laughs> stuff up because it was a quiet week. <laughs> I know. I was worried, so I did go out of my way. But mm. Mad God is doing the rounds. This is Phil Tippett. Mm. Phil Tippett is a very grisly special effects man who's worked on everything from like Jurassic Park to a second thing I can't name. Mm. And he's worked on a great deal of things. Star Wars. He's involved in all of the original Star Wars trilogy and was an animation supervisor on Force Awakens. So he's been about. And since 1990, he has dreamed of making an incredibly grim um, and unpleasant animated movie with stop motion. He stopped working on it after Jurassic Park because he thought that stop motion was dead mm. when he saw the CGI. Which is interesting, interesting sort of takeaway from that. The subsequent, obviously, subsequent movies taught him uh, maybe there's a bit of life mm. in stop motion left anyway. Mm. <laughs> Don't let that put you off. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a purely stop motion movie about a terrifying world, which is sort of a dark parody of our own, in which workers, um, faceless workers, sort of trudge about the place doing their menial tasks, whilst horrible giant grotesques kind of prey upon them every now and then or just you know cruel to them for absolutely no reason and it's a a blasted blighted landscape and into this world descends a man on a mission he's wearing a gas mask and he has a map and he has a suitcase full with a bomb in it and it seems that he is going to destroy this entire world Mm -hmm. and he ventures down deep into the depths encountering bizarre monsters and creepy little scenes and vignettes of these kind of like really weird, grotesque, and sometimes overtly sexualized beasts, um, lovingly realized in mm. very slimy stop motion models and miniatures. Um, yeah, and it's just, it's it's beautiful in a way that you absolutely cannot describe. It's just the beauty of rusting gears and mm. flesh and blood. And it's just, yeah, if you're just Googling pictures of I it am. now, you'll, I am you'll, see, some, oh, you'll wow. see some mighty sights, yeah. Gosh. <laughs> Yeah, it has. Uh, I can't think of anything else to compare it to except mm. other Phil Tippett work because actually he made a movie called Virus uh-huh. back in the 90s that had similar monster design to this. The sort of sci- uh, uh, is it cyberpunk, I guess. The, mm. the steampunk and cyberpunk. The idea of metal and flesh. Yeah. You know, it's a bit of Tetsuo the Iron Man going on. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's really grotesque, but it's absolutely mesmerizing. There's very little dialogue. Uh, well, there's no dialogue, in fact, except, you know, sort of implied stuff. And it was just, it's very unique. It felt like an mm. animated movie from time gone by. Something that, you know, was just really willing to re- risk uh, audiences' being um, involvement. Out. Yeah, it and being grossed like out. It looks like it would have been banned in the, banned yes. in the 80s. Banned, yes, it's, it's like a video nasty. Yeah. It's exactly like that. And mm. yeah, it's... A very fascinating film that I really enjoyed watching. That is, yeah, a lot. It <laughs> it's a very full-on like experience, lot. and it's a bit bleak. Mm. So, mums maybe aren't necessarily going to like this one as much. I don't know. Maybe your mum's nasty. Maybe your mum's nasty and bleak, mm. and that's fine. Mm. Mad God is four stars. It's very Mad good. God? It's just a, cool. a lot to take. Yeah, it's, it looks. Yeah. It's a no from me, but Fair I enough. appreciate that someone out there is making something so grotesque and creative. Yeah, the only reason I would recommend it to you is just the sheer strength of the animation. Yeah, I do kind of want to watch a clip. Yeah, watch clips because, yeah. my God, these things in motion is quite incredible. Watch the trailer. The trailer is very good. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's just incredible to see this completely, uh, um, what's the word, esoteric vision realized in a very unique way. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Ah, speaking of an esoteric vision, mm. if Ithaca. Ithaca. This is a documentary about Julian Assange. Interesting. 
Yes, it tells it recounts the story of how he ended up held up in the um in the embassy and how that eventually you know went south and he ended up in jail and is now facing extradition mm. uh, processes which would send him to America where he may at worst be put into a sort of super maximum security prison uh, where he will experience inhuman treatment. Mm. Um, and it's about the campaign by his father Richard Assange and his wife Stella Morris who was also at one stage as legal representation and their attempts to try and free him. Um, and find justice for Assange. So in doing that, in focusing on the human aspect, and Assange as a human being rather than as a, um, you know, a political figure, the tricky thing is you have to get into the politics of it and mm. you do have to address the fact that this is offering a very straightforward impression of Assange. Mm. Assange is unambiguously morally correct. Mm. You know, nobody's ever been harmed by WikiLeaks except the right people, people with stuff to hide. And it's about the freedom of the press and what is happening to Assange is, you know, public torture, deliberate, humiliating mm. treatment in order to discourage whistleblowers. And if that's your if that's your narrative on this, great. Go, that's fine. This will be a film that really speaks to you. And it is, I think, capturing something. It's an important movement because the idea that the press should be free is important. I don't know where I quite am with all of this, you know, if, because to talk about this, you end up getting into politics. And I just, mm. I worry that it can't possibly be that straightforward. Mm. Um, there was apparently a White House investigation, the documentary recounts by the Obama administration, to look into the number of people who have been killed as a direct result of WikiLeaks, and they came up with the idea that nobody has. Mm. No assets have disappeared, no whistleblowers have you know, vanished, and no one has been killed in reprisals. Interesting. Uh, yeah, if true. And mm. it's like, this is such a dark world, you can't really mm -hmm. gauge this kind of thing. You know, if true, that's great. You know, the idea that the truth will out and, you know, to hell with the consequences probably maybe is the way to go. Because one can argue a number of people killed by WikiLeaks and the information that's come out probably pales in comparison to the number of people killed in the illegal wars that WikiLeaks has exposed information about. Oh, heck so, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, know. there's no way it could compare to what, you know, the number of people who were killed in Iraq. <laughs> Exactly. Absolutely. You know, there's no it's way that's not that physically people... possible. <laughs> well, indeed, the CIA aren't that good at taking out, you know, yeah. whistleblowers. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, politics aside, it offers a very straightforward kind of narrative, which is the idea that nobody should be being treated the way that he is mm. and that nobody should have to, you know, face the things that he is. It glosses over the fact that the reason that he was due to be arrested was because of sexual assault allegations in Sweden. Yeah. It doesn't outright deny them, nor does it really explore them much mm -hmm. um i don't know the narrative before i watched this movie i feel like was julian assange is not a nice guy but what he does is important yeah this one doesn't do that much to challenge that idea um, but it is a powerful testament to a man who has certainly made his mark um and has certainly you know had an impact on the world and raised some very interesting questions about what you believe you know does your state have good cause to keep secrets from you sometimes mm. You know, that's a good question to think about and to yeah. be involved in. So, but this film is far more interesting than just the struggle. Okay. The struggle to free Assange and there's like references to his philosophy. But more than anything else, it's kind of like a legal dispute drama, um, which continues to be unfolding. And I think actually there has been some bad news because Biden is still pushing to um, have him extradited to the US. But I think rather than put him in a supermax, the idea is that they might just pass him back to Australia where he is still technically a citizen and have them deal with him in one of their prisons. So oh, Famously great prisons. 
Yeah, indeed. But it's a better situation than under the Trump administration. Interestingly, the family is so desperate, they do actually travel to America to try and uh, procure one of um, Trump's dodgy last minute, you know, when he was doing his pardon a mm. at the end of his presidency. They go there to try and get one from him and, you know, have to come with the stark realization that he wasn't pardoning anyone that wasn't in his own benefit to do so. Wow. Yeah. Tragic. So... Yeah, a film that might rile you up a bit, but at the very least will get you thinking about some interesting questions about the freedom of the press and the necessity of it. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Then you've got Man vs. B. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I wasn't sure I was going to see enough stuff for this episode, so I sought out Man vs. B on Netflix, the new Rowan Atkinson mm. comedy in which he fights a bee. That's all there is to it, really. I was very surprised to learn it is not a movie. It's a mini-series with 10 episodes. Uh-huh. And I was like, what? How is it 10 episodes of a man trying to get a bee out of a house he's house-sitting? That's immoral that it's that long. <laughs> the episodes are 10 minutes long max. Okay. The first episode is 20 minutes long. All subsequent episodes are 10 minutes. Uh-huh. Meaning that the whole thing is like an hour and 40. Okay. Why is it that? Yeah. Why is it that? Mm. Why is the movie? Why is the thing? Why <sighs> is Man vs. B? It's a throwback, but does not feel... It doesn't feel like it's renewing or like saying, observe the simple art of physical comedy, which we have lost. Because Atkinson really struggles to do this stuff now. He used to be a master mm. at this. You watch his Secret Policeman Balls uh, performances in the 80s, or Mr. Bean, you'll yeah. see that this is a guy who really knows how to move his body to be funny. And here, simple mind premises, like there's a bee in your trousers and you're trying not to let the person you're speaking to know about it, just turns into these awkward little prolonged movements that are just not funny. And it just really speaks to someone who's really lost touch with his own art. Mm. And it's That's particularly distressing. It is a shame. And it's, but it's kind of deserved because Atkinson has been coming out, you know, mm. he's been the most recent boring white old comedian to come out and decry woke culture yeah. for ruining comedy because you're not allowed to say what needs to be said and yeah. comedy needs it's to be supposed dangerous. supposed to offend you. No. It must offend you. It absolutely must. And it's like, dude, you got famous because you used to like make a sandwich out of bread you kept in your sock. <laughs> Who yeah. are you offending? Who is Blackadder even offending? Like uh, the officious little middleman? I guess he so. watched Blackadder and he went, That's just like me, I hate it. <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> yeah. It's like ugh, you're, you you at your edgiest was your work with Ben Elton. Like you're not mm. you know, you're not the, the most vicious comedy comedian on the circuit. No, so and it, that's why it, it was great. <laughs> Exactly, it was universal, yeah. and it was. That's the thing: is comedy can be universal. Mm. It doesn't have to offend. That's not what it's about. No. Comedy is never about making people suffer. It's about subverting expectation, mm. and it didn't do that because I expected this to be crap, and it was mm. one star. <laughs> Get in the bin. <laughs> Get in the bin, Rowan Atkinson. Your time is up. Get in the bin with and Paul. Speaking of time being up, my segues got really tight in the last couple. Mm, real tight. Yeah, mm. I didn't. I didn't have anything for the railway children, but. <laughs> Man versus B. Yeah, I know exactly how to it. get out of there. Nailed it. Oh, and I'd have nailed that B too. There were plenty of mm-hmm. opportunities where he has trapped that B and he could just leave it. Yeah, just leave it. Like, I, I was watching it with the family and there's a bit where he gets it under a plunger. Mm. And it's like, oh, why doesn't he get something to slide under the plunger so that he can move it? And mum just said, or oh, just leave it under the plunger. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you could just leave it under the plunger. Yeah. 
They don't live forever. Yeah. Mm. Leave it under the plunger, everyone. Mm. And uh, whilst you're leaving things under the plunger, you can leave your reviews for this podcast. Oh, we're at the end. We are actually at the <laughs> yeah. end. Yeah. Oh, okay. We are actually at the end. I've uh, got the saga has finished. <laughs> we're finished. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. <laughs> Sausages. Sausages. I, ever since you mentioned <laughs> sausages and beans my stomach has been rumbling oh. rumbling oh god mm. it's it's sickening what this podcast costs you yeah personally, personally. in time not spent yeah. eating sausages with beans um yeah if you like sausages and beans why not tell us you can send us an email <laughs> at filmcriticpodcast at gmail.com mm. or you can get in touch with us via social media at screen mayhem for this is a Screen Mayhem podcast. Um, yes. And it always will be. Yes. Our theme music was by <laughs> Jacob Blundell. Um, shout out to Jake. He passed his uh, his cool music exam recently. So we, we, Oh my God, he did a cool music he exam. Did, he did. He nailed it. Of course he did. Is he, a prof- is he now Professor Cool Music? He is Professor Cool Music. Mm. Ah. And he would appreciate it if you used his full title. <laughs> Um, Professor Cool Music. Yeah. <laughs> Professor Cool Blubble. Music PhD. <laughs> the P stands Amazing. for Professor. The H stands for Hakul. Hakul. The D stands for Druther. Diva. Druther. Um, <laughs> that's how you do improv comedy. <laughs> <laughs> you want to see more of that kind of gold, then you just got to go over to uh, Quest Fantastic. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's Jen promote some other things. Involved. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, why not? We never stuff. have, We right? do so much stuff. We do a lot of stuff. We're, we, we are both so much together stuff. on another podcast where there are three other people, so it is funnier. Um, yes. <laughs> crucially, this, this gets watered out a bit. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, uh, and you do another RPG podcast. We haven't even explained what that first one was, Paul. Um, that one, it's, it's where we play D&D and make each other laugh a lot. It's very yep. silly and fun, and it's called Quest Fantastic, and it's very good. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, and that's silly and I also do another one called Roll Plus Heart where we play not D&D but games very similar so I tend to just tell people yeah. it's D&D um, yeah, probably safer yeah it's easier but we play lots of silly little games and again we also just try and make each other laugh so um, they're both a lot of fun we play lots of games on there people listen to you play Monopoly <laughs> yeah what? like football uh. <laughs> do you feel like you could introduce RPG elements to something like Monopoly? Like, play it, but, like, with character sheets and special abilities you could do. Yeah. Mum, I see you've landed on my Mayfair Hotel again. I'm afraid... Looks like I'm going to bankrupt you. So let's act that scene out, because that's going to be a lot of fun for me. (laughs) And I would like to see real tears, if you can manage that, please. If you pass a high enough charisma check, you might be able to talk yourself into the waiting staff, but you will have to remain at the space until you've earned enough to... um... Yeah. We should play Monopoly, but with TTRPG characters. Yeah. And roll the We could just use our Quest Fantastic characters. Yeah. No, I want to make but a businessman. A businessman. Mm. Ah, um. you merely adopted Excel. <laughs> well, I was born in it. Mm. By the time I saw Google Sheets, I was already a man. <laughs> <laughs> so late. Sorry. We do swear a lot in the other podcast. We ones, do swear yes. a lot Sorry. more on the other podcast, though. And yeah. It's so... Uh, um, this Ooh. is the one. This Jen and the this film is critic the that... is the podcast I tend to recommend to my mum. Yeah, uh, this is the one that you should strangers. play to kids, everyone. Um, yeah, because we've turned down the awesome. swearing because we're adults. We turn down the swearing. Mm. Yeah. Turn Absolutely. down the what? I was going to say turn down <laughs> the fuss, but I can't. 
<laughs> I'm going to put that in, but bleep you. <laughs> I'm Paul Bleeps. Yeah. Um, and I'm stuck under a plunger. <laughs> and remember, the one good thing. No, no. wait, what is this? Paul, oh, no. no. We what just, we just, we just fade out on this one. We just stop. Okay, we just fade out slowly, slowly. Right. Like, like we were forever ah. making fun, witty banter. Slowly ah. we fade out. Oh, and the the conversation continues. The conversation continues on when we're not just we're not just saying elephant juice back and forwards at each other. Elephant for the sake of the camera. And then we're gone. Right, sausage time. (laughs) Sausage time. Now that's a reference to blackout. (laughs) Yes. Yes.